This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Radiothon is still on, and so it must be near the end of the financial year. I know all sorts of groups are asking us to donate at the moment, and the time feels precarious. So we would like to thank everyone who has donated so far to our Radiothon. And I'd like to urge anyone who can to ring up 3CR and dedicate a few more dollars to the Climate Action Show. The number is 039419 You can also donate online by going to 3CR website, Donate. I think we are the avant-garde. And I thrill to hear politicians now saying ideas that to them are new, but to all of you listeners and to us are quite old. Ideas like Australia as a renewable energy superpower. Well, that idea has been built and built by many groups and voiced here on 3CR over a decade at least. So tonight you will hear John Grimes talking up Australia as a renewable energy superpower. We've been uh, talking about it for a decade, but he, he in the Smart Energy Council is really putting it into action. We'll also hear from our roving reporter, Kurt Johnson, who takes us to Wyala and Port Augusta in South Australia. It was hard for him to find a room as so many people are out there uh, building the wind farms. And in April, Sanjeev Gupta talked about his Wyala business and said Australia produces enough iron ore to produce 500 million tonnes of green steel every year. He said, and I quote, rather than trying to ship hydrogen abroad, we should use it domestically to produce fossil free green steel, end of quote. We've now got a new government with its ears tuned in to innovation. And I was at the Smart Energy Conference in May, and I was standing near um, Anthony Albanese, the new Prime Minister, and Chris Bowen, the new Climate Minister, before they were in those positions. And they were just so enthusiastic with these young people explaining something called 5B. It was a kind of ready-made roofing material covered in solar panels, so you could just roll out roofing for a factory in, you know, in a few hours. So that you could hear the enthusiasm in their voice. I, was, I just recorded a tiny little clip from them. Uh, we'll listen to that now, and then we'll hear from John Grimes. In two years. That's yep. right. Yeah. During, yeah. during COVID. During COVID. During COVID. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well done. That's very um, where about to your base? Where's your uh, mascot here in Sydney. Okay, great. We've got an industrial campus there. Yep. Um, very close where to the airport. Where um, walking distance from the airport. Well, well, what street? Uh, oh, oh, um, Kent Road, Road and uh, oh, Rickety Street. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We'd love to host um, you guys. Yeah. Come great. and have a look. Come uh, see uh, the uh, company uh, house. Excellent. Manufactured and, a, and a factory employee. down in Adelaide as well. Um, okay. Great. Oh, yeah, Thank yeah. you. Thanks for saying good day. Just tell us what you do. 
Sure. Um, so we we have a prefabricated solar array that can be rapidly deployed. So we're the fastest solar um, deployed technology in the world. You uh, mentioned Chile. I yeah, so we're headquartered here in Australia, uh, but we also have operations in Chile, the US and India. Yeah. And the, um, Anthony Albanese seemed very interested in you being really in his electorate. Like, uh, what, what's it, just a startup company, is it? Just recently started up? Uh, seven, seven years ago we founded, and yeah, we're, we're based here in Sydney. So we're, we're, in, the, uh, we're in the electorate just, just next to Anthony's uh, in Kingsford Smith. What? It's called 5B, is that right? 5B stands for 5 billion years, which is the number of years of sunshine left that we have. <laughs> and the question is, how will we use it? Good. Sounds like you climate change <laughs> aware. Uh, uh, you could say that, yes. <laughs> John Grimes is the CEO of the Smart Energy Council. He is fully aware of the climate crisis. And I want to ask him today about how the media could do better to show us the solutions. I've been to the Smart Energy Conference every year and they are connected with everyone who has an idea, whether it's state energy ministers or farmers, hydrogen experts or big undersea cable makers. I've interviewed so many people from that gathering that it makes my head reel. But the best bit, I think, is the side event where people in the energy industry can get training and upskilling. So, John, welcome. Now that we have a new federal government, what changes are ahead? Well, don't, don't we all feel lighter, Vivian, after a change <laughs> of government? Absolutely fantastic. And, and so I think, I think a lot has changed, just as I think, you know, the, the world thinks about, you know, um, the change that happened with the Biden administration coming into the US, where we went from Trumpism to, to really embracing uh, the need for climate action and putting tangible support in, in place there, so too we are seeing the same transformation in our country, going from nine years of denial and delay of obstruction to, to a, a new government that understands the urgency of, of action on climate uh, and is putting a suite of policies in place to make that happen. So I feel like it's a new dawn. I feel like we've wasted a decade and, and I felt like we couldn't bear to waste a single day more. Oh, and you have been in this for so long, haven't you? I remember all those meetings with Christine Milne and John Hewson and then the empty seat, you know, all those meetings. <laughs> yeah, and, and that, that, that was the Abbott government who were determined to completely abolish the renewable energy target. And, and in fact, Vivian, they succeeded mm -hmm. because when the energy renewable energy target ended in 2020, it was replaced by nothing. So Australia's target to 2030 was 0% renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Now, the modelling that, that the Labor Party have done um, shows that, that, that they will, they're on track to deliver over 83% renewables by 2030. I hope that that is an underestimation. I hope that we go further than that. Mm -hmm. But we do have a lot of work to do because we're going to, in the next decade, completely electrify transportation, for example. So it's not just going to be energy like we know it, but it's going to be an expanded uh, energy, um, uh, uh, electrified energy system. Yeah, and this is what I want the media to know, because as we said, the, the government has changed, but the media hasn't changed, and they may continue a bit on that sort of, I think, quite ignorant pathway, gloom and doom sort of pathway, whereas it's quite an exciting story you're telling, and all the people in this industry are telling if only they could have their head and get the right specifications. <laughs> 
isn't isn't it appalling you know some of the media coverage that just has come out around around this stuff that the latest push in the last 24 hours um from the opposition and from the murdoch press has been you know almost okay well if we've if we've lost the debate you know kind of around climate then australia's future is nuclear energy <laughs> so this is just this is just a new way of delay obstruction you know, um, coming up with, with reasons why we shouldn't act. You see, Vivian, everybody knows that you can go out and build a solar farm with essentially a post hole digger and an Allen key, right? And we can tap into the world's cheapest and cleanest electricity. But instead, these, these just, just, you know, um, backward people. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying to be kind. <laughs> These backward people. Uh, what, what you know? What, what I say? No, 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 no. We, we should be planning a, a, a nuclear power plant. It'll take 15 years to build, billions of dollars, and will be completely uninsurable. That's the way to fix the, the climate crisis. It's yeah. just another furphy that shows that these people are just don't get it. Yeah. Right. Oh well. Look. During the election, one ABC headline said, "Climate change is being." buried, though voters say it's top of their concern. And the uh, that was vindicated in the election. And I felt frustrated because journalists didn't seem to ask questions that allowed candidates to talk about big solutions. And there were a lot of them, the Teals, the ALP and the Greens. You know, they were all wanting to talk about their big solutions. What, what was your response to that, um, you know, the media during that last election? In a sense, we had to take the view that that actually I, I don't care what the media say because this is a this is an, a ground up this is a community led uprising if you like and that really was best typified in the performance of the teal candidates. So people who are uh, you know really new for their family's future, for their community's future, we need to take urgent action on climate. Now there were other drivers, things like. Um, corruption in politics, right, uh, about the inclusion of women, right? There were other factors, but it was the climate issue that was so time critical. People knew that if we don't act now, actually time's up. So that's the thing that gave the whole movement impetus. And I think you'll find, Vivian, that this is not the end of that, of that, of that transformation of Australian politics. It's merely the beginning. People get this, communities get this, people are acting, and they're just not being fooled by the Murdoch press anymore. Yeah. Well, if the media allows the climate wars to be over, you know, Bowen said the climate wars are over, or Albanese, I can't remember, it was a kind of one of those, oh, you know, relief moments. But if the climate wars are over, what story do you want them to tell us? Because I think a lot of people do not know just how big it is. Well, the, the, the critical thing is really, I think, to tell an economic story. Um, you know, solar and wind in Australia produce energy, typically up until very recently, at, at about one third the cost of coal-fired power stations, right? One third the cost. We're not talking about 2% cheaper or 5% cheaper. We're talking about one third the cost, like, like dramatically cheaper, less than half the price, right? Mm -hmm. Now, what we've just witnessed is an energy crisis playing out in Australia Be because of uh, because we've invested in this so-called gas-led recovery. Do you remember, Vivian? This was the big thing that the federal government's put billions of dollars into, really increased our dependency on gas, and gas prices internationally have gone absolutely through the roof. Now you're talking about solar and gas 
producing at around $40 per megawatt hour, and the gas-fired power stations producing at over $300 per megawatt hour. So it's not even, so, so once people know this is the cheapest form of electricity, and this is the electricity that the whole world is demanding in embedded products in steel, in zinc and aluminium, then we actually are at the right place in history at the right time and in the right geography. We have the best renewable resources. This is about the reindustrialization of our economy, attract, attracting heavy industry and, and energy intensive industry to this country, employing tens of thousands of Australians and producing the cleanest and cheapest products that we export to the world. So it's a really, really bright future. It's based on economics and it's, it's happening and real today. Yeah. Well, um, you know, lots of think tanks have been putting out reports about how this will happen. And there, as you say, we've got rid of the main obstructionists, but there's still fossil fuel money coming in, and that's part of that corruption. But the scale of this energy transition and the upskilling of the workers, it does look colossal to me. And I have done interviews with people saying we just haven't got the workers. And for a long time, the renewable uh, wind and solar industry was saying we, we just haven't got the right settings, government settings to make us invest in this big thing including export of energy. But what questions could the media ask, do you think, that would help us understand the scale of this and what's needed? Well, the, the surprising story is the bottom-up transformation of the energy market, right? A lot of planners thought about energy as being, you know, rooftop solar and batteries and electric vehicles as to being like a, a little tiny footnote, kind of something that was a fringe activity that happened somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. And now in many markets, it makes up more than 30% of generation in different states and territories. In yeah. some states and territories, it makes up 100% of, of, our, of our generation today, yeah. right? So, so, so this is something that, that's happening from the bottom up as much as it's happening from the top down. Down. And so, yes, we, you know, and, and this is going to, Vivian, this is going to be the transformation over the next decade is going to be like the, the industrial revolution. That's the scale and magnitude of change we're talking about for the whole of our society and for the whole of the economy. But the thing is, it's going to happen 10 times faster than the industrial revolution happened. Mm -hmm. So this is the decade where everything changes, everything, electrification of transport, we electrify everything, we cut off gas, we completely transform our economy and so yes that you know we're going but the good news is we can respond we've seen that industry can ramp up if if the programs are put in place things like the the, the federal government's 10,000 apprenticeship program so 10,000 free apprenticeships for skilled people in this sector then we can make the transition but it doesn't happen by accident we need that plan. We need the leadership of governments, both federal and state, to actually uh, make it as cheap and quick as possible. Yeah, well, lots of listeners will have read that book by Saul Griffith, The, the Switch, and he really does, he does focus on that household level and local industry level and manufacturing here, and not, he doesn't put too much hope on hydrogen. And, you know, he's, he's, a thought leader there but maybe the time has come for that but I think it's with where we need the media to talk it up and to not necessarily to advocate for it you know they can take either side but but to not go down yeah as you say a rabbit hole over nuclear or something you know just get with what is already happening and 
ask the questions. I don't think it's easy. I don't think it will be easy. I know you're a great optimist, but I think it must involve a lot of hard. Look how COVID, how hard it was for COVID. Look at the workers in the hospitals and the schools who've really fallen by the wayside now um, because it was impossible to even just do a plain and ordinary pandemic. I mean, I think renewable energy is a bigger thing than that. Yeah, and, and there's there's no doubt that the you know that the forces the the vested interests around coal and gas and particularly gas in Australia are very substantial. They these are global networks. You know these are very powerful industries. They are they are fighting tooth and nail to hold on to every dollar of revenue they can as they kind of slip away. And so I, I don't underestimate you know the scale of the of the the opponents that we have, but I am heartened. Vivian by the people of Australia and so don't underestimate voices like your own voice this is about like community media to actually get the the, the the message out there I would say to you that more people are engaging and listening and tuning in and saying what rot what rubbish what utter rubbish when they when they hear it from the other side they're seeing through it and we're seeing that in election results and I think we'll see that continue so in a sense we will prevail um, uh, and uh, but but we are up against formidable odds. Okay, well look for homeowners. Let's go. I want to look at the the low level of the just the average homeowner, and then at the big export level. For homeowners, what's the new story you want to tell? I think the new government is firming up the grid. They're putting a lot of money into the grid and rewiring the nation, and they're offering community batteries. And I want to know. Uh, so people who live in apartments can get clean energy. Tell us what it will be like. What are the advantages for people just at the domestic level? Yeah, well, well a couple of things that I'm thinking about at the moment. The first one is cut the gas. So, so gas used to be about, in the Australian market, about $6 a kilojoule. When we started to export it, it went to $9 or $12 a kilojoule. And today it's sitting at $300 a kilojoule. Right. That is the magnitude of the of of the, the problem with gas. Now the thing is that Russia cannot take away Australia's sunshine or wind. Right, Russia does not have that capacity. Right, Russia was able to put gas prices up to three hundred dollars a kilojoule. Right, that that was the effective outcome. And so we need to embrace and actually start to say, let's cut the gas. You can do space heating with heat pumps and hydronic hot water systems or very efficient reverse cycle air conditioners. So you can do and live a very comfortable life powered by renewable energy. You can heat your water, your hot water with heat pump technology or directly driven PV electric hot water system. You can actually cook in, on your cooktop on, on induction cooktops. You can effectively cut the gas to your home and business, get rid of all of those emissions and save yourself an absolute fortune, still have exactly the same standard of living that you have today. Um, in fact, probably more comfortable. And it's not subject to petro dictators dictators from overseas kind of you know calling the shots so that's that's something that i'm very very interested in seeing people you know, that people do well i want to know about like apartment dwellers because people always say this is a, a problem and chris bowen said i was at a forum where i live and he said we're giving a you know a, a big battery to bondi as specific as that and apparently 60 percent of the people in bondi are living in apartments so how's that going to change so, so we, we have several members that focus specifically on this area. So one of it is net virtual metering. Mm -hmm. 
So it means you don't have to have the solar system on your apartment block. You can actually contract with somebody that has a solar system remote to you and actually do an offset of your metering arrangements. That is all technically possible. And so oh. it means people shouldn't be constrained about the fact that they don't have access to a rooftop that they control. That, that's going to be really important. So we have members that do that peer-to-peer -peer trading right now today in Australia. It's real and it's being rolled out. The other one is access to electric vehicle charging. So very difficult if you live in a big apartment block, you've got limited parking, how do you get access to that? So these are all things that are going to be, you know, be, be really important. But the good news is there are technical and financial solutions to these things. They are, they are being rolled out and we can make it so that one, everybody gets access and two, nobody gets left behind that we have programs for low-income people, for example, that don't have the upfront capital to install solar or batteries or electric vehicle charging, that, that we, we, we through, through financial models, allow them to access the technology and pay it back over a long period of time so their savings they make are greater than the repayment rate that they're doing. So they're saving money at the same time as, as switching to renewables. Okay, the yeah. biggest, the big picture then is um, us becoming an exporter of renewable energy. We're so far we're a superpower in gas exports. I think um, shortly after Saudi Arabia becoming a renewable energy superpower. I think a lot of people haven't really got a grip on what that looks like. Yeah, sure. Let, let me give you one one tangible example for people. A company called Sun Metals. They're a Korean company, and they they refine zinc. They refine other metals as well, but refined zinc is a big one. And what they've, what they've figured out is that refining zinc is a very energy intensive process and energy prices around the world are very high. So they actually move their zinc refining to just outside of Townsville in Queensland. And they power the zinc refining through a really big solar farm. So they're using Australian sunshine to create the energy that, 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 that refines the zinc and then they export the zinc. They've said that by 2025, all of their metal production will be driven by renewable energy. And that's because it's the cheapest energy. It's also the cleanest energy. So the emissions in that zinc, zero emissions, right, from the smelting process. Now think about Australia. We dig up minerals and we send them overseas. We basically get big tractors and we dig up essentially dirt. I mean, I'm over-exaggerating, but essentially dirt, put it onto a boat and then send it overseas. And overseas, they do all the value adding, right? They actually then create the steel and they create the aluminium and they create the other things that is used in the construction, build cars, build aircraft, all of that around the world, right? Build batteries. Now, we have the resources. We also have access to the, to the world's cheapest electricity. If you put a solar panel in Queensland or Western Australia or outback New South Wales, even northern, northern Victoria, that solar panel will produce up to 2.6 times more energy than the exact same solar panel in Germany, anywhere in Germany or in the UK, or in Japan, or in South Korea. These places don't have access to the same solar resources that we have. They don't have access to land. They don't have access to the infrastructure, the ports, the rail lines that allow you to do that and actually export things to market. We do. It's called the Pilbara, right? It's called, you know, the, the north of, of Queensland. That's what we do. That's what our economy is not completely built on, but it's a big, important foundation of our economy. Now, imagine this. 
We take all of those metals, we value add here using the world's cheapest electricity as an input source, means we can outcompete anybody in the world. Think about all those manufacturing jobs that currently reside in Germany, in Kentucky, and in Shanghai, and actually bringing those back so that they're actually happening here, then you think about how we employ Australians for the long term and derive a, a benefit right throughout our economy by value adding and actually reaping the benefits for the Australian economy. That's what renewable energy superpower is all about. Well, as you say, it's a ground up, you know, from these industries and thinkers up. I don't see anyone in Parliament talking like that yet, but we need them to put in the regulations to make it, for example, to protect First Nations people. It's not just empty land. We're not going back to terra nullius. And I know you're very well sensitive about that. So how are we going to get, again, the journalists, the media, the story? Who's going to tell the story of how that will happen? A good example is Andrew Forrest from uh, Fortescue future industries, right? So one of the, you know, Twiggy Forest, right? One of the big mining billionaires. And, and when he sat down and looked at this, he said, holy dooly, you know, this, is, this changes everything. This actually means that, that by harnessing renewables, we could, we could, he personally is thinking, we could actually grow the most profitable company in the world because others haven't seen the opportunity yet. Others are not moving yet. Others don't have an imagination. Others don't see the opportunity. So what he's what he's done is he's focused his whole business on exploiting this opportunity, being the first to market, and actually developing these projects, not just in Australia, but in other places around the world where they have access to great renewable resources, places like Chile, or you know, um, uh, or other jurisdictions. So so the early movers, the smart money, get it. They're moving, they're just doing it. And what will happen is it just takes time for the others to catch up. And a good example, you know, was the big battery in South Australia. Nobody had an imagination, firstly, that it could be done, or secondly, that it would really add huge value. Until Elon Musk and Mike Cannon-Brooks made a bet on Twitter, and less than 100 days later, there's the big battery. Now, a couple of years later, and people are saying that was that is one of the most significant assets on the grid, and gee, couldn't batteries really solve our problems? Well, no joke, Sherlock, you know, is what I would say, right? This has been self-evident. This is not this is not some mystery. And so, yes, that, that is happening. It will continue to happen. The transition will happen. And, and the others look like, yesterday's men and women they're left behind right and they're left behind commercially and politi politically yeah. and that's the transition me, underway. it makes me a bit nervous having this all run by billionaires though because i feel that we do there's such a role for government and for the community you know it's always been these local communities who said okay this gas is going to frack our great artesian basin it's the local people who know that the aboriginal people who say this is this is not this is not legal this is trampling on our rights um, that has got to happen, that, that it's not the same sort of gold rush mentality. I know it's exciting for you, no, well, I completely agree. And the good news is those communities that are taking action, it means there's a really sustainable economic model behind what they're doing. So, you know, because if you can harness that and then actually so it feeds on itself and reinforces, then those opportunities are absolutely there. And they are absolutely the groups that we should empower, be empowering, right? You know, as, as you say, all very well for, for, for the kind of the billionaires to make the move. I suppose my point is, 
Um, the, the environment is ripe for this to happen. Those that want to make the switch and engage it, I think, can be very successful in this. And whether that's a local cooperative, whether it's First Nations people making, making the move, or whether it's large companies, but ultimately that's good for all of us and it's good for the planet. All right, well, let's finish now. Uh, just would you like to say a word to the climate movement? Because our listeners, a lot of them are taking all sorts of climate action in all its, you know, climate, the climate crisis is so multi pronged, isn't it? It's bigger than an octopus. You know, there's so many sectors in it. But you're a big sector of it, the energy, electricity sector. But what do you want to say to the climate activists who you hear about in the news a little bit? Um, well, my, my, my message would be this. Um, just as Don Chip said from the Democrats, it's, it's incumbent on all of us to keep the bastards honest. And that doesn't matter who's in government, right, whether it's Labor or Liberal or anybody else. Ultimately, we have to continue to strive to push the, you know, our federal and our state politicians to do more, to go faster, to be more ambitious, because the climate crisis is upon us and we have to transition and move really quickly. Everything from waste the reef, um, recycling, plastic, you know, so many aspects of, uh, of our world. So, so uh, what I would say is, you know, uh, enjoy the win, right? We're, this is a big step forward where we've come from, but it's not the end. And, and, and now's the time to, to really focus and, you know, support in a positive way, but also continue to push and, and make sure we go further and faster. Thank you, John. So that was John Grimes, CEO of the Smart Energy Council. Thank you, John. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. I'd like to now put in a few words to thank the people who have donated to our Radiothon appeal this year. They, these people have dedicated some money to the Climate Action Show. And as you'll see, they're all over the country. I hope they actually listen to the show. Some of them are my friends. And uh, we've got a few admirers that I don't even know. But I'm really, really pleased to hear that some people are really enjoying our show. So Helen Sanderson in Sydney, Sue Abbott in Scone, Mandy King and Fabio Cavadini in Marrickville, Grant Miles in Sunshine West, Meg Clancy in Balmain, Anna Carmody, Alexandria, Juliet Fox in Collingwood, Jeanette Ninnis in Wagga, Fahima Badrulhisham in Maroubra, Jerry Langford in Woolloomooloo, James Curzon in Clunes, Dr Peter Sainsbury in Darling Point, Joseph Malignani in Garden Vale, Laura Carmody in Kingston, Tasmania, Elizabeth Brasseur in Mudgee, Bruce Albrecht in Gordon, Greg Siegel in Kew, Susan Sharp in Caulfield South, and a special thanks to Sue Abbott in Scone because she gives us a monthly donation, $10 every month. So that's something that you could think about, listeners. I think there'll be more to come, but these are these is the list I've got now. And donations, big and small, are very welcome. Every dollar counts. So thank you very much to those people. I can tell you also it gives me a lot of encouragement just to know that people are on my side. And there was also a donation in there from film nights I've shown during COVID. 
at my house in the Transition Film Festival. I showed some of the films there. Transition Films, um, Daniel Simon's always been very good to us, helping us, you know, meet the directors and makers of films on climate action. And so at my house, we had film showings and um, that, that amounted to quite a bit of money to add to Radiothon and we'll have more in July. So thank you very much to all of you. Green Dreams. Managing the transition from rust to renewables is the title of Kurt Johnson's article in Renew Economy. It takes us to Port Augusta, Wyala, Port Pirie and the people who depend on the green dream becoming a reality. Kurt is no stranger to desert places. In his book The Red Wake he took us to Siberia with the remnants of Soviet era gulags and most memorably to the Bikunur Cosmodrome. So I know he will help us visualise the desert region of South Australia, which is on a roller coaster towards green energy. Keep that word in mind, roller coaster, because so many of the people he talked to really feel that. Hi Kurt, look, you're the Climate Action Show's roving reporter at the moment, so what surprised you most when you got to Port Augusta? And the first thing you see is all red desert, and then on the right-hand side, so on the northern side, you've got the, um, the Flinders Ranges, so these quite dramatic ranges. But then that rises out of the desert is you have this particular tower, and the tower is um, a, a solar tower that reflects light down to the um, to, to these mirrors and that captures it to to grow tomatoes, which is there's a project there that's just growing tomatoes out of um, you know sunlight and seawater. That's the that's the plan, but it really functions as a beacon when you're coming into into the area to really state that it's about renewable energy and um, that's what's happening here. You mentioned in your article like Port Augusta Renewable Energy Park, Lincoln Gap Wind Farm, Goats Hill. Uh, pumped hydro, Bangala and Coltana solar farms, they may not mean much to us right now, but how impressive were they? Well, they were really impressive. It was, the Port Augusta is, I think, about uh, 50 minutes away from Wyala, and I was travelling back and forth between those two places. Uh, Wyala is obviously famous for Liberty Steel, uh, one of the biggest steelworks uh, in Australia. But um, when you travel back and forth between those two places, it's really striking. You'll, you'll see these uh, massive wind turbines on, on Lincoln Gap, and they're quite majestic the way they turn. But then you'll see as well, like wind turbines and solar panels being erected. Everywhere I was looking, there was cranes. I, um, I struggled to get a, a hotel room even in, in Port Augusta. I had to convince a guy to open up one that he has in a hotel that he was renovating just to get a space there's that much work going on and there's that many people and contractors involved so the scale of this is huge and I was really struck by um just how uh little I'd heard about it before um, yeah. I kind of I, I went there on a whim a little bit um so it was quite quite surprising yeah the scale yeah well i'm i want listeners to hear about this too because it's like the snowy mountains hydro scheme i was taken there as a child to see that to be suitably impressed mm. you know my mother took me inside the 
oh, I don't know where we were inside all these machinery under the ground and I was just a small child but I was amazed by it and that was a post-war project with all those Hungarians and Latvians and mm. who knows how many people worked on that thing. But that was something that we were all proud of. But you don't hear about all this renewable energy. It doesn't seem to cohere into a picture of, you know, a big thing happening in the desert. And I went to Port Augusta a few years back and the MP met me at the bus stop and I was very impressed by him. He was a very real gentleman. And but everyone he introduced me to was totally motivated to make this transition away from coal-fired power. And one of the workers took me down to where they'd exploded the Playford generators. This is about five years ago, and they just exploded mm. the last coal-fired power thing. And, and they all mentioned the high rate of cancer from years of being a coal-fired powerhouse for the state. Now, that MP, Dan Van Holst-Pelican, he's now the state minister for energy, and he told, I think he told you some new things. He said the Spencer Gulf, Gulf area is like Sil Silicon Valley or it will be Silicon Valley. And I wondered what new projects did you see and did he tell you about? Uh, I, I mostly saw ones that had uh, established technologies, but I, I spoke with some people um, it, it, that were using quite uh, interesting new technologies. Um, probably one that I recall most vividly is um, 1414, um, which is a, uh, the idea is to, instead of store uh, energy, solar power or energy um, in uh, water or steam, the idea is to store it in silicon and 1414 is the uh, temperature that silicon melts in. Um, so they're a publicly listed company, and I was really impressed when I spoke uh, with, I, th I think it was the um, chief operating officer, um, how much they were really trying this, this new technology, which was operating as a world first. They had international interest from, um, from California in particular, and um, just, yeah, the degree of of new technology um another another one of the big ones which is uh has a little bit more of a checkered um recent history is uh liberty steel obviously which has been um owned by sanjeev gupta who has been um he's run into a little bit of financial uh trouble um midway through last year but he has incredibly ambitious goals to make uh to make green steel so that's obviously uh building massive amounts of renewables but also to um to to forge steel in a way um that is totally carbon neutral um and what's really interesting about that is um i went while i was there and did a tour of the way other steel works um, and you really see it's it's this massive, quite dirty, but fairly uh, fairly dramatic, uh, massive installation where there's there's big piles of chemicals which are all these different colours. So you've got the yellow of the sulphur, you've got um, steam bursting out of, of different areas, and you've got the rust. Like rust is kind of ever present there, and you've got different areas, and they're built in different times because it's a really old facility it was started by uh bhp um i don't know the exact date but it's it's been going for a really really long time so the idea that this facility that employs so many people with basically the whole town of 
uh, city really of Wyala depends on it, um, is a, a, that it can have a new, um, a, 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 you know, a, a yet another version that will be introduced into the whole complex uh, using uh, green steel and um, that that technology would be um, that would be the one that not just me when I was there, but the whole world is is sort of tuning into to that to see if um, uh, that Liberty Steel can make that a, a viable business. Yeah, I, I was uh, very uplifted when I heard that project was started. But then you mentioned in your article that Sanjeev Gupta also has bought up old steel places in Czechia, UK, and Romania. So he's got a big vision, a kind of global green seal export industry, I imagine. What do you know about those other parts of green steel? Do you know if green steel is being made by him anywhere else? I don't, I don't think uh, that it is being um, made anywhere else, but the plans were very, uh, you know, were, were very, very ambitious. Um, and of course, he bought all that before COVID hit. So the world was, was quite a different place. The labor pool was quite different. Yeah. Uh, the amount of investment um, was, was, was quite different, but hopefully, hopefully the amount of investment that's available for projects like these would be more advantageous post COVID with the massive amounts of infrastructure that's, that's, um, that's set the amounts of money for infrastructure. But uh, the story of those other uh, steelworks is, is very much the same uh, as in Wyala. Um, so Wyala, Sanjeev Gupta came to Wyala as the savior uh, of Wyala. It came, if you recall, as a, as a really big, uh, with a lot of hoopla around it. Um, it was it was a uh, it was huge for the town because they thought they were at the edge of the whole thing being shut down, and he came in and saved it. That's very much the model that has been. Uh, repeated um, in those in those other countries where there are these really old uh, massive complexes they're losing huge amounts of money uh, and he comes in um, at the last moment to save it now whether he can transform that into a business that's green as well um, I think the jury's still at, still out on that but he's he's certainly invested a lot of money into it yeah well you met the steel workers there and I think they are more wary and they've been on that roller coaster for quite a long time and even all the time that i've been doing anything about climate action i've heard about you know port augusta and that whole area and really it's boom and bust and boom and bust and i just don't know how people can bear it but one of them those workers said we've gone from promise promised expansion into a big city with eighty thousand jobs to being told we might virtually be a ghost town and they've got a nice deep water port at Benison, apparently and I wonder how close are we to producing green steel and green hydrogen maybe down there? And is it all dependent on Sanjeev Gupta or would the government step in? Um, I, I'm not, I, I haven't been following the story since I left there in um, like at the end of last year. So I'm not sure how it's progressed, but I, I do know that there is, um, that when I was speaking with the um, with the the steel workers, one of the subtexts that kind of came out was that yeah, it is a roller coaster, but there's so much uh, invested, and, and this, it's one of the only places that creates steel in particular for um, for train lines. 
um, in in the whole country, and that is really expensive to uh, to to import from anywhere else. So it's absolutely a necessary uh, industry, and it can't survive by continuing to use continuing to use coal. And on top of that, like I said, when I travelled around in the complex itself, it was quite clear that a lot of the technology that they were using is quite old. And sooner or later, it would need to be updated. Now, Sanjay Gupta and uh, Liberty Steel have, have slated huge amounts of cash. I, I can't recall it off the top of my head, but massive amounts of money to update the steel mill itself. Um, for that to use old technology, so for that to use coal-based a, a coal based, um, furnace just would not make a lot of sense, right? So there's a lot, and all the, like I said in the article, there's all these uh, massive, uh, huge projects in renewables. Uh, they're they're in the vicinity. They're they're really close. So when you start weighing up all those um, all those different aspects together, so it, it can't be shut down. Australia needs it. Uh, there's enough energy in the area. And a lot of the steel mill itself needs to be upgraded soon. That all points to not this being, uh, for, for this to turn into green steel, not to be a, a crazy stab in the dark, but to be a much more logical, business sensible choice. Um, yeah. Well, the mayor of Wyala also wants to do green hydrogen there. And I know up here in the Illawarra, they also want to do, um, what's his name, Twiggy Forest wants to do green hydrogen of New South Wales, but um, what what did you hear about green hydrogen there? Um, there was a lot of there was a lot of talk about green hydrogen. Um, that is in a much earlier uh, stage of development. So I know that the town of Wyala was very much wanting to get behind it. Um, that definitely comes from um, a diversification of their local economy. Um, so there's that that uh, that impetus to to kind of introduce this new one. Um, it's going to be quite expensive, and it's a little bit less of a proven technology at the moment in in the area. Um, there's there's an overriding issue um, which I I heard about um, where there is uh, where there's more and more of these different, um, you know, it's wind turbines and they're being introduced and solar power and that's being added to the grid. There's a complexity that's involved where the amount of modeling that's that's required um, when a new uh, solar farm or a new uh, wind farm is added that uh, all, whoever's next in line have to totally redo their modeling from scratch. Oh, now, that is a really strong um, push that would make uh, sort of leveling, um, adding, uh, you know, a green hydrogen or something like that. Some way there, there's external storage of that energy, um, that as a, as, a viable, as a viable option. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. Independent community media is vital 
And we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. strong. A couple of years ago, you did a really good interview with a German trade unionist. And I think he came out here. He was invited here by the trade unions to talk about the transition for workers. And he told us, I'll never forget it, how he told us about the German way of doing it, which was to get all the stakeholders together, all the local people, the unions, the the future thinkers, you know, the Silicon Valley types, as well as the actual coal industry that was being phased out in the Ruhr and the new energy that was coming in. Now, I just thought that, and then he kept saying to you very proudly that they'd ne- they hadn't left anyone behind. They had given packages to the older workers to retrain, but they had also made a whole plan of deploying the younger blokes to, or, and women, I suppose, to, to work still in the heavy coal work industry until it was phased out. I just, oh, just looks so good, <laughs> you know, but I don't hear anything about that here. You know, this conscious, top-down, really big, far vision future and Ross Garner has been talking about he said oh you know you have to be an absolute idiot to miss this opportunity there's so much wealth to be made here um, wealth of minerals nearby in those middle back ranges that you mentioned and he says the region is ready to go but I want to know what government policies you know like that German one do you see anybody talking like that like here's the grand plan here's the blueprint uh, in South Australia or at a, at a national level? Yeah, or, or in, either. In, where? Now, wherever your research has led you. Um, well, as yeah, it, it's very much been um, something that I've been looking at and really hoping. Um, I wrote another article, which is on the Latrobe Valley, which I probably understand in a little bit more depth than uh, the transition in, in South Australia. But... Um, I think we struggle, to be honest. I think we struggle as a country to be able to perform these these transitions ahead of time. Um, to there's one um, one thing that I'm looking at, which is uh, the the transition in the Latrobe Valley, where you've got hundreds of um, workers um, that have been working in brown coal. Uh, for for generations, and um, your law and W is that uh, the uh, midway through last year announced that it was shutting down and there's 200 workers there and I've looked at that transition in a, a fair bit of detail um, and you know what the government puts in a little bit of money the state government um, they're trying to present alternatives they're creating um, you know um, but but I think our One of their alternatives, which was um, to build a really large uh, EV factory with SEA Electric, um, that was supposed to employ 500 people. And um, they got a grant, SEA Electric, and for some reason, which I can't really figure out why, the deal broke down and that factory is not getting built. So that's... That that would have been a beautiful transition. Um, It would have been amazing where you get people that go straight from, um, you know, working in coal uh, to working, building uh, electric vehicles. Um, it's exactly the sort of thing that that, um, that we want, but for some reason, the business can't get off the ground. 
Um, exactly why is under commercial confidence. Um, I've got a FOI request that I'm trying to figure out um, exactly why it broke down. But I think one thing that you, is, is, is pretty clear that SEA Electric, they've tried to build it in Victoria. They've tried to build it in Australia. Mm. The Tony Fairweather, who is the, um, who is the CEO, he's from Victoria. He, he did everything that he could, I believe, to make it happen in Victoria. But then now he, he's given up and he's gone to California and he's an SEA Electric uh, is building. Um, they've they've got a they got a contract to build ten thousand or to trans uh, to to change to electric vehicles uh, ten thousand school buses, which is a, a massive contract. Which says to me that they the capabilities there they know what they're doing, but there was some sort of externality in Australia that stopped them from doing it. Whether that's the government or, or whatever is going on, um, I, I, I'm, I'm not totally sure and I won't know until I've, I've really unpicked it a little bit. Um, I don't want the listeners to go away and slit their wrists. You know, I don't. No, but, but one thing that I can say um, that I've, I've been looking into is um, the, the, university, the universities and the uh, TAFEs and the tertiary education sector has been very, very good and they've been proactive with for, um, creating pathways um, from uh, coal workers uh, and, and, and retraining them. Um, there's in particular um, Murdoch, Murdoch University, University, which is a Federation University, that's a university in TAFE. They're building a whole um, uh, facility in Ballarat, which is specifically for training up people to use wind turbines. In my mind, the original Snowy Mountains hydroelectric project is the model for how we can make the transition to clean energy in the short time frame that we have before all the coal, gas and oil must be phased out. It's the writing's on the wall for us, but it isn't clear to everyone, obviously. And I would like to know, climate campaigners around the world, I hear them in many webinars and certainly at the Glasgow COP meeting, a lot of them were saying we have to make this transition in a different way than previous models of industrialisation. We have to make it publicly owned and it has to be in contain workers rights you know you can't just have unqualified people doing the work and not being protected and no, nothing put in place to make things safe for everybody and meanwhile we have in China's Belt and Road project which is involves some renewable energy but it's so massive and those hydroelectric dam projects they've done in China so massive that you really wonder how can you do those protections, the environmental protections, the local protections that need to be put in place? So mega projects, and you must have seen plenty when you went across the, the ex-Soviet Union sort of rusting away big mega projects. So I don't know if that's the way to go or is it just the present way, which is all these entrepreneurs hovering around, getting funding, going bust, getting someone else. That seems to be a very messy way to do it too. So where do you see, what, maybe what's your ideal? It's a great question, uh, and I think there's there's kind of there's two questions uh, baked baked in there a little bit. The first one, I I, I suppose, um, is whether we're looking at a, a, the old school big centralized electricity like we used to have, or the more dis, uh, distributed, you know, little microgrids and they're all connected. Um, 
I would actually say that it's it's probably the latter the latter model where you and a really interesting uh, case study here is the town of Hayfield, which is on the peripheral of the Latrobe Valley. I, I know there's a lot of people in the Latrobe Valley that would say it's not in there, but it's in that sort of proximity. And they are really interesting because they, when they were using brown coal, they were always on the edge of the grid. So they had problems with getting electricity when it was coal-based. So there was always a, 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 an incentive there for them to create their own electricity, totally disregarding any sort of climate change or, or, or emissions there. But there was also, they wanted better quality and uh, electricity and they wanted to be empowered. So that's the site where there's a really interesting microgrid uh, trial and pilot. It's community driven. Uh, it was difficult to get someone on the record about it because a lot of the people that had uh, planned it and designed it wanted to keep it at arm's length and they wanted to, to make it about the community that it wasn't being very much distributed. So you see a situation there where it is distributed, it's, um, it's, it's non-centralized and it's driven by the community itself. That is, if that, that model can work um, as it is in a few other towns around that are generating their own electricity, that would, would be fantastic. And it's definitely a model that can circumvent you know, the, the, the lack of policy direction, um, whether it's capable of generating the exact, the amount of power in the time that we need that's renewable, I probably not, but it's probably part of the solution. I think the second part of the question was whether this should be uh, government driven or market driven. I think ideally it has to be government driven and, and specifically because, you know, it's government's that are managing the distribution networks. It's government agencies that are that are in charge of so many different aspects. But but what we have seen last year is that the 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 market incentives for the government to make a decision are pushing them even the most reluctant. So even the the federal government at the moment pushing them in a direction where they are committing economic suicide not to do it. So I'd say it's a hybrid. Okay, thank you. So we've been talking to Kurt Johnson, who's our roving reporter. This time he took us to Port Augusta and the Spencer Gulf. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Viv. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Tonight's been a very upbeat show, taking us to Wyala, Port Augusta, where lots is happening in the uh, industrial zone to cut emissions. First, it's got to be the wind power, and then it's got to be the green steel. And we heard then from John Grimes from the Smart Energy Council, which is promoting that all over Australia, huge projects. The grid connections now coming from the billion dollars put in by the new government. Uh, we, we're trying to make this an accelerated process. And there are many, many players, many, yeah, you could call them players. I think for some of them, they are playing. They're playing the market. They're playing the um, future. But we, the climate activists, we're not playing. We're really promoting something that we believe in, which is a survivable uh, world to live in. And a lot of you listening, I know, are campaigners against coal and gas, and that fight has to go on. You are campaigners for community-owned renewable energy and uh, people's assemblies to govern the way these things are rolled out. It can't just be all the billionaires making the decisions. 
and I appreciate the work of all of you. Please contact us if you have a story to tell on the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong.